Uh, my name's Brian. If you don't know, I'm the lead pastor around here. I've been away, and it is great to be back. I really miss you uh, when I'm gone. And uh, though while I've been away, I've been absolutely delighted to have the privilege of having Derry and Bob teaching us as a church. Those guys, are I've been listening in on podcasts and such from the different places I've been, and those guys are fantastic. I'm most appreciative for them, and I promise that you'll see those guys on this stage again. I promise you that. I want to say thanks, too, to Brandon and Oakland for their great leadership in my absence. Way to go. Good job. And uh, as I like to do at the end of every quarter uh, is to do what I like to call a family update, kind of like a family meeting, us as the family called Journey Church. Uh, So we've just reached the end of our 2Q, our second quarter. We're on a September 1 fiscal year. And so that means we're 50% of the way through the year. And I just wanted to update you on some stuff across the life of our church. To this point in our fiscal year, we're seeing an average weekend service attendance of about 818 folks across the life of our church. That's everybody, both services, kids, adults, the whole deal. Uh, Just for benchmark's sake, that's about 30% over last year, 30% more than last year. At present, giving to the general fund, not to the light campaign, just to the general fund, to salaries and ministry operations and the bills we pay and such, not the capital campaign. Giving has averaged to date $16,535 a weekend. That's about a 20% increase over last year. Though it's interesting uh, that we're noting that we set our ministry budget at an anticipated giving level at about 19300 bucks a week to that general fund. So that means, if you do the math, if you're quick with numbers and such, there's about a three grand per week deficit to the general fund. We're running short about three grand per week to the general fund. And uh, we're not panicking about that, though we are concerned. Oakland and I have had some meetings in the last week or so talking about these issues. Uh, We're concerned because there's a lot of service, there's a lot of outreach to our community, there's a lot of ministry uh, literally around the world that is represented in that $3,000 shortfall. So that means what that translates into that is if that giving trajectory continues on that present course, we're literally going to be scrapping, shelving some ministry that we think is important that we embark upon, okay? And you all know this very well if you've been around here for any distance length of time at all, but we're very low-key about the giving and the offering thing around Journey. Some people have even told me uh, that that's to a fault and maybe they're right. But I would simply challenge and offer to you the consideration of what your role might be in reversing that $3,000 a week shortage and actually helping to make up the shortfall. And I will never ask you to do something that I'm not personally willing to do, so I want you to know that Dana and I, we're digging in, we're stepping our giving up. And I also want you to note that we're not going to be bringing out what I like to call the tithing stick And we're not going to be whacking anyone with it around here, okay? Because the Bible, we think, is quite clear that the 10% thing is a floor for our giving. It's a floor, not a ceiling. Paul directs us very directly to give cheerfully when we give. And so I'd simply invite you to consider what you're able to give cheerfully to God through your church called Journey out of everything that he's given to you. And if we do that as a congregation, if we do that as a family, we'll get this trend turned right around and uh, it'll just be taken care of. I trust that, okay? 
uh, as you also know, uh, Easter is rapidly coming. We around this place make much of Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and all that that means to all of humanity. We see it as a major opportunity in the course of a year to make Jesus as available as possible to as many people as possible. One of the ways we do that is through that Easter egg hunt outreach that you just saw the film of a moment ago. We're moving it, just so you know. This year it's at the Bozeman High School Athletic Fields. That's a change over previous years. We just felt like we needed more elbow room than Bogart Park has been able to provide us. And so it will be there. Lots of you have taken eggs home, taken eggs home and filled them up. Way to go. Good job on that. 30 grand plus eggs, like 30,000 plus eggs this year. That is astounding. I would ask that if uh, you took eggs home that you would have them back here by next weekend or at least back to the office by the 19th. And out in the lobby today, I would encourage and challenge you to be involved in that Easter egg hunt, that community outreach in some way. There's myriad ways for you to sign up to serve at that event. You can do that at the table in the lobby today. Easter weekend, we're adding a weekend service to make additional room for the guests that we anticipate will be joining us that weekend. We're sending a postcard out as we want to do uh, at these seasons. I'm just going to tell you this, that uh, peeps is the theme of this uh, uh, card we're sending out. Lots of you will get that in your mailbox. You all know what peeps are, right? Peeps are the theme. And so we anticipate guests will be joining us. We'll do a service on Saturday night, just like normal, 6 o'clock. Then we'll do two on Sunday morning, not at 10 o'clock, but one at 9 and one at 11. And I would ask you who are a part of the regular Journey Church family to as much as possible attend Saturday night, especially that weekend, so that we leave room for our guests on Sunday morning. All three of those services are generally identical And they're also prime inviting opportunities for you to use with people in your world who are exploring, asking questions about what it means to follow Jesus. I cannot wait for Easter. It's going to be a great one as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lots of you have been asking about land, what's happening with our land process. The due diligence process is proceeding, it's continuing, and that is going very, very well. That team is just churning right along, answering the Lots of questions that we must have answered before we take possession of that land, stuff like water and traffic and shape of the parcel, governmental issues and such. The great news is, is that the longer we wait, the more cash stacks up in our bank account that will pay for that land. To, right now, to this moment, we have 70% of that purchase price in cash right now. So good job, those of you who are giving to the Light Campaign. That is a great place for us to be in. And as soon as we know more about all that process, so will you as we get to tell you where it is and all that kind of stuff. I want to say thanks for your attention and care about those matters right there. Let's get on to the other. Any questions? Grab me afterwards if you have any. That'd be good. Uh, we're kicking off a run of three messages this weekend that we call The Bridge. And we're going to be in this run of messages all the way through Easter weekend. And this weekend we're going to specifically talk about the bridge across the chasm of sin. Quite a message title. The bridge across the chasm of sin. And our big idea for today looks like this. God invites us, every one of us, to drop our trowels and put down our hard hats and walk across the bridge that he has constructed from himself to us. Would you bow your heads and let's pray together. God, we feel real privileged to step into this time, a time when we can relate so intimately to you 
thanks God for not being a God who just sits far and distant, but is involved in the smallest details of our lives. And God, we, we all carry with us a ton of stuff into this time. I ask we're just able to set that aside, to focus our hearts and our spirits, our minds on you and on what you have for us. We're expectant, God. We believe that you have something for us. And we're humbled by that. And we give this time to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Speaking of bridges, I've been out in Portland, Oregon recently working on this Masters of Leadership out at George Fox. It is a fantastic program. I'm learning a ton, way more than my brain even has capacity for. It's a lot like drinking out of a fire hose, if you've ever tried to do that, if you can envision that. And Portland is a large city, and Portland is also a city with an awful lot of bridges. And uh, none of the people that I hang out with while I'm out there in Portland are from there. So I decided before the program started, I better get myself one of those fancy little GPS deals. How many of you have one of those fancy little GPS deals? Yeah, not very many of us because we live in a very small town where we don't need one of those. If you need one of those in this town, well, you know. So I get myself one of those things, and it's cool because you just punch in your destination address. You then choose one of four routes that you want it to calculate for you to get there. You can choose either fastest time, least use of freeways, the shortest distance, or even the setting that lets you decide that you want to use the most use of freeways. And you punch that in, and she... Of course, it's a woman's voice, right? It's a woman's voice that directs you. It's literally the only way they could ever get a man to listen to a woman, give him directions, right? Make her a computer and we'll listen to her, right? Well, my favorite thing about this little GPS, all right, maybe I've got two favorite things. Number one, she has a power button. You can turn her off, right? Which is sometimes, there's some trouble there. And The second thing, my second favorite thing about that is that when you screw up, when you miss a turn, even though you have a GPS telling you right where to go, you you still mess up, at least I do. But when you screw up, instead of like yelling at you and telling like, you dummy, how did you miss that? It was right there. Any of you know about this? She doesn't do that. She just very calmly says, calculating route and picks a new route since you screwed up the first best route gets you back on course, right? It's absolutely fantastic. I I literally think that these GPS navigators are going to save a lot of marriages in our world, right? And so she just tells you the way. All you have to do is follow her directions turn by turn. Well, this one night, uh, there's about 13 or 14 men in our program, and we're going to meet at this very cool restaurant there called Montage. Uh, Any of you ever been to Montage in Portland? Uh, They call it one of Portland's quirkiest restaurants. And if you're ever in Portland, you absolutely have to go to this place. So we punch in our directions into our trusty GPS and we head out. Well, as it turns out, I punched in the wrong street. Montage is on Southeast Morrison. I told the GPS it was on Southwest Morrison. So we ended up downtown driving around and and she's telling, here's what she says when you've arrived. She says, you have arrived. And we're just driving up and down the street going like, what? No, we have not arrived. There is no place called Montage on the street. So we call our buddies and say, look, here's where we are. And they're like, no, 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 no. You're on the wrong side of the river. You need to be on Southeast Morrison. So, uh, all right. And so, We punch Southeast Morrison into the GPS. 
and we're off. Now we're going the right direction. That means we've got to cross over this bridge, the Morrison Street Bridge. She's telling us to go, and so we're crossing over this bridge. I'm like, great, we're almost there. I can see the little destination thing. We're getting close to it. But we get to the other side of the bridge, and she directs us to take a series then of left turns. We turn left, we turn left, we turn left, and we go, now we're going right back across the bridge in the opposite direction we should be going. I'm like, what in the world is going on? What is happening here? And the guys in the car, they're like, what, what are we doing, Hopkins? They're getting mad, you know, like, oh, we just want to eat. We're hungry, right? And so I'm going, what is this? How, how can this possibly be? We get about a third of the way across the bridge, and she says those words, you have arrived. <laughs> no. Now, this is like a highway bridge, right? Like 50 miles an hour. There's either two or three lanes going in either, each direction, right? There's no businesses on the bridge. There's not even a shoulder on the bridge. You know, there's like, you, you have arrived, what in the world? Well, as it turns out, Montage is literally right underneath that bridge. And so the GPS woman, she doesn't know how high in the air you are, Right? X just marks the spot, and so we were over literally the spot, and so she says, you have arrived. So she said we had arrived, so, you know, I just threw the rental car in the park and just put it, left it right there, and we jumped down 30 feet on top of the roof, and it was a fantastic bridge experience. That's my bridge story from Portland. On to a much more serious bridge story. On January 5th, 1933, construction began on one of what was, what one is, ha! <laughs> one of the great feats, I've been out of the saddle for a while, I gotta get kind of revved up, it was one of the great feats of construction and engineering to that date, which was the Golden Gate Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge cost over $27 million to build. Interestingly, it came in $1.3 million under budget. How often does that happen? Right, like a government project that comes in under budget? That might have been the very last one ever. $1.3 million under budget. It cost the lives of 11 construction workers. It was built with 1.2 million rivets. It spanned 8,981 feet. It's 90 feet wide, 746 feet to the top of those towers. The bridge deck, the deck that you drive on, sits 220 feet above the high water line of San Francisco Bay. It weighs 894,500 tons, the bridge does. The towers alone, just the towers, are 44,000 tons each. And there's these two main cables that pass over the tops of the main towers. They're secured in these concrete anchorages at each end of the bridge. Each one of those cables is made up of 27,572 strands of wire. That means there's 80,000 miles of wire in those two main cables. It took over six months to spin those cables out. That cable, you can go actually stand next to like a a cross section of that stuff, 36 and 38 inches in diameter and is 7,260 feet long. It is a spectacular project, an absolutely amazing bridge. And there were these naysayers back in 1933 that said there was no way that a bridge could ever be built across that 6,700 foot strait. There were very strong swirling tides, currents and such. The water is 335 feet deep out in the middle of the channel. 
an almost constant wind, 60 miles an hour, blows through there. They said that the ferocious winds, the blinding fogs, would actually prevent construction and operation of that bridge. But against all odds, on May 27, 1937, the great Golden Gate Bridge opened first to pedestrians. You could go walk across the thing, and then the next day, May 28, 1937, it opened to automobile traffic. Since then, the Golden Gate Bridge has only closed three times for weather. Extremely high winds caused it to close three times. Twice it's been closed for visits by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, French President Charles de Gaulle. It was also closed, some of you might remember this, for its 50th birthday. Today, about 40 million vehicles a year cross the Golden Gate Bridge. 40 million a year, counting both north and southbound crossings. You talk about a monumental undertaking just simply to span a body of water. Raises a great question in my mind. Why in the world would they go to such effort just to span a body of water? It was clear. Because, see, the only practical short route from the city of San Francisco out to what is now Marin County was by boat through the interior of San Francisco Bay. And if you didn't want to take the boat, you had to circumnavigate the bay. That involves a trip of several hundred miles, crossing several major rivers along the way. No easy trip at all. And so that meant that San Francisco was the largest American city still served primarily by boat. And because it didn't have a permanent link with communities out around the bay, the city's growth rate was well below the national average of the day. But it isn't anymore, is it? They got that bridge built. How many of you have crossed the Golden Gate Bridge? It's a fantastic experience. Like, everybody should do that in their lifetime. Speaking of bridges, since shortly after the beginning of time, humanity, us, We've undertaken numerous, and I mean numerous, bridge-building attempts to span the distance between God and us, haven't we? We've been about it for literally thousands of years, haven't we? All the way back in the beginning of time, God created. You could read about God creating in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 sometime. We know that God created the sky and the land. He separated the waters from the land. He created the night and the day. He created the plants and the fish and the animals. And then he created the crowning achievement of creation, which is humanity, which is us, right? One man, one woman, the centerpiece of his created order. And because God's ultimate purpose in all that he does is to display his glory, Adam and Eve received and Adam and Eve displayed the very life of God himself. It was hardwired. The life of God was hardwired into Adam and Eve. The glory of God was so evident on Adam and Eve. And through God's very unique creation of humanity, see, he was showcasing his perfection He was showcasing his purity. He was showcasing his love at its very best. But you know what happened, right? Let's look at it together. Genesis chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, you could open there. If not, you could follow along on your notes page or the side screens. Let's read this. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
One day, he asked the woman, that's the serpent, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. That's Eve, by the way. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. Notice there's, there's absolutely nothing in this text that indicates that it was an apple, okay? Like, it kinda, like the apple kind of gets a bad rap right? It's like the apple was the fruit. It doesn't say, it just says the fruit looked delicious. There's other delicious looking fruits besides the apple, isn't there? It's just some kind of fruit, okay? She wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her. And Eve, she takes the bad rap on this deal too, right? We go, oh, it's all Eve's fault, right? But look, Adam, the text says, Adam was right there the entire time. He could have piped up and said, you know, dear, we're not supposed to do this. There's a shirt that maybe you've seen this, and it's the uh, Apple computer logo, you know, the Apple with kind of a bite out of it, and then underneath or on top of it, it says, she made me do it. (laughs) Not the case. Not the case. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment... Their eyes were opened, and you know the rest of the story. And so we read that text, and we could say, that's where sin entered humanity, right? And because of sin entering humanity, we're all tainted. That's us included because we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. We're tainted by those actions that happened in the Garden of Eden not long after the beginning of time. And if you were to say all of that, you would be absolutely right. But what also happened is that Adam and Eve, and therefore all of us in that moment, lost life, right? We lost life. At least part of what Satan told Adam and Eve would happen actually happened. They became, see, independent creatures cut off from the life with God, which they had so richly enjoyed up to that moment. They were cut off from God's mind and from his perfections, from his purity. Life for Adam and Eve from that point forward had to be found only within themselves, see. And it's in that sense that tragically they became like God, see. Because God's life comes from no place other than himself, God draws no morality, no moral law from anyone outside of himself, right? God is self-existent. But now, because of their disobedience, Adam and Eve were severed. They were distanced. They were removed from any higher, from any outside source, from any moral law that might sustain them. They were on their own, like God. And from that moment on, people, humanity, were left to think of God in very lofty and in very distant terms, right? 
honest human beings looked in and on their own hearts, in and on their own souls, and they said, I don't even live up to my own expectations, let alone what I would imagine a holy, perfect, transcendent God's to be. I can and don't even keep my own conscience clean, let alone actually live up to the standard of moral perfection that a God would probably hold me accountable to, right? which meant that as human beings, they looked in and on their own hearts, they looked in and on their own lives, they looked upon their inner world and they recognized their darkness. They saw their evil. They saw that they were mean, terrible thoughts and words bubbled up about other people. Actions which only sought to please themselves were commonplace. Greed and mistreatment, the abuse of others ran rampant. I could go on, see, but you get the picture, right? And then what began to happen was over time, systems of belief began to emerge and come clearly into focus. People would say things like, all right, if I'm ever going to come into a relationship with this holy transcendent being, how is that ever going to happen when there's such a distance between us, when there's such a chasm that separates us? What are we going to do, they asked, to span that divide? And over time, increasing numbers of faith systems emerged, which they themselves attempted to answer the question, how are we going to reach God? They knew he's so completely other than we are. And then approach after approach after approach showed up on the scene to attempt to bridge the divide which had befallen humanity in the Garden of Eden. And they all had one thing in common, one thing in common. That the construction efforts to span the chasm of sin and of separation between man and God all started on the human side of the equation. All started on the human side of the equation. Look at just a couple of the major religions of the world. It doesn't even matter which ones they are. One says that life is all about the balance of our good and our bad deeds, which determines a person's eternal destiny, whether they go to heaven or whether they go to hell. In that particular system of belief, God's mercy may indeed tip the scales in our favor, but it is not assured. It is quite arbitrary. Another major world religion propagates the truth that it's our works and it's our doing that assures us of eternal life. And if you look into and if you study any major world religion you can find, you are guaranteed to discover that the construction process to span the chasm of separation between us and God all starts on the human side. It all starts with us. There's systems of belief in which people have said, if only we could just toe the line a little closer, if only we could just live a little more nobly, if only we could just live a little more honorably, if only we could just become, whatever this means, more religious, if only we would pray a certain number of prayers, do a certain number of charitable acts, serve a certain number of times in these certain ways. They're all built on the concept of mobilizing a massive human construction effort. And maybe, just maybe, through the course of an entire lifetime, we could somehow span that chasm between ourselves and God in such a way that maybe, just maybe, by the end of our lives, we just might have been able to build that bridge out far enough over that chasm to be able to get over to the other side to a relationship with God that would positively prepare us for the life that is to come after this one. But I have a question 
and I think it's a good question, if you have to just be good to get into heaven, how in the world do you know if you've been good enough? If you have to be good to get into heaven, how do you know if you've been good enough? You don't, right? That's just the thing. If you have to be good to get into heaven, then don't you just spend your whole life looking over your shoulder, hoping, wondering, praying that you've been good enough. And even when you think that maybe, just maybe you've been good enough, there's always a question mark that looms, isn't there? You study every major world religion, you'll find they're construction projects. They start on the human side of the chasm. They require stacks and stacks of human effort, human energy that continues over the course of an entire lifetime. But there's never any proof, there's never any peace that you're going to get it done before you die. But doggone it, you'd better try. You'd better try. Then if you do something quite remarkable... If you contrast all the major world religions and you hold them up next to biblical Christianity, you find something that will blow your mind. And it's that the Bible teaches this, that God himself saw the chasm that existed. He saw the chasm that separated him from the sin and from the darkness of humanity. He saw that chasm for what it really was, which is so much bigger than our feeble minds ever, ever imagined it to be. And God knew that no amount, no amount of construction effort, no amount of bridge work starting on our side of the chasm could or would ever be enough to span such a divide. So God did a most amazing thing. He took the bridge building responsibility upon himself. He provided the bridge. He provided the way for that chasm to be spanned all the way across to the human side. And he didn't have to do that, did he? Tell you the truth, God was doing just fine over there on his side of the chasm, wasn't he? Everything was well in order. Our side was a wreck, right? But God's side of the chasm, it was going fine. But he did it anyway. Why? Because of his incredible, undying love for us. His incredible, undying love for you and for me, for every person who would ever live on planet Earth. His only, his only motivation was love. And some of you might be wondering, asking the question, I'll bet that was some construction project. Wow, what year did that begin? It began round about the year 4 B.C., See, it started when God sent Jesus Christ, his one and only son, to earth, born an infant, most humble entry into humanity, in a stable. And a long time after Jesus' birth, quite late in Jesus' life, actually, if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 14. This particular text is part of what's referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse, He's getting ready to check out. Jesus is talking with his disciples about his impending departure. He uses language that was very customary for any kind of departure literature in Jewish culture. He comforts his disciples. He promises the arrival of the Holy Spirit after he's out of here. And then he says, and guys, you are going to do fine. As a matter of fact, you're going to flourish after I'm out of here. But the language that Jesus was using, it wasn't necessarily crystal clear to his followers. It was a little bit cryptic, as was often Jesus' style. They didn't get it. And the disciples, they're standing there, sitting there, and they're distraught. 
They know that they've supposedly entered Jerusalem for the last time. Jesus is talking about checking out, talking about his death. The disciples are wallowing in pretty profound disillusionment and fear. And finally, Jesus is talking that day about everything that's about to happen. He's leaving and he's saying, you know where I'm going. And Thomas, Thomas is the one who's brave enough to finally pipe up. Look at John 14, 5. Look at what he says. Jesus is saying, like, you know where I'm going, right? And you, you know, and Thomas is like, no, we don't know, actually. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? And see, for Thomas to have tipped his hand that far was to reveal that even after three years of living and moving and serving with Jesus, they still had not fully grasped that Jesus and his death on the cross was the way that, first of all, he was returning to God, And second of all, that his death on the cross was the bridge across that chasm of sin which people had been so preoccupied with bridging on our own for thousands and thousands of years. Jesus, see, was God's grand construction project, in quotes, of course, to span that divide, the divide that had existed since Adam and Eve blew it all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And so Thomas says, no, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answers his question like this, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now that is the most outrageous assertion that Jesus Christ ever made. It is his most politically incorrect claim of all time. And this verse, this claim, rankles people like no other. It's been called arrogant and narrow-minded and bigoted and snobbish. But Jesus was telling the truth when he said it. He was absolutely telling the truth when he said it. And get this, he said it out of incredible compassion. It wasn't loaded up with arrogance incredible compassion marks those words and this single sentence from jesus lips it's one of the most important utterances which has ever been made and it's very very clear from john 14 6 that the emphasis of this verse falls very very strongly on the first of the three terms jesus uses to describe himself first of all the way it's point number one on your outline if you're following along there Jesus says, I am the way, which in other words, Jesus is saying access to the Father's presence in heaven will only be through me and not through any other, no other means, no other way, no other person, me. And in these days, running up to Easter, just two weekends from now, Lots and lots of us will spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about Jesus hanging on that cross and dying on a day that we call Good Friday, which is an interesting title for that day. doesn't seem so good, does it? As we do that in the coming days and in the coming weeks, as we think on the cross of Jesus Christ and all that that means for us, John 14, 6 gives us incredible permission to think about the crossbar of the cross of Jesus Christ as being the bridge deck itself that spans the chasm of sin from God's side all the way over to the human side, all the way over to us. Every other major world religion is based on the human construction project. 
through our own struggling, through our own striving, that we could maybe somehow earn the favor of God and slip into heaven, but it does not work that way. Through Jesus, and only through Jesus, God has spanned the chasm. Through Jesus, God has made it possible for us to walk across the bridge built by his hands, paid for by his son. Jesus is the, capital the, way, capital way. And we know that's the case because point two, Jesus is also the truth. Jesus is also the truth. That means that Jesus is the authoritative representative and revealer of God himself. Jesus hears what God says. He obeys what God tells him to do. Jesus, this is cool, watch this. Jesus discloses God to us and he discloses God to us exhaustively. He discloses God to all of humanity exhaustively, unlike anyone else ever can. Why? Because he's seen God. That's the first reason, because he's seen God. And then you step out even a layer from that reality. Jesus is the truth. Jesus discloses God to us because God himself was in Christ. God was present in Christ. We can say that Jesus is the way, not just because Jesus was accurate in his statements about God, but rather we can say that Jesus is the way because God was fully present in Christ. God was fully working through Christ to make the world, to make us right with himself. This is interesting to think about, that Jesus' own claims about himself are what make his spiritual claims so incredibly potent, right? Think about the things that Jesus says. A couple of them right here. I am the truth. I am the way. Other places in the Gospels, Jesus has said, I am the light of the world. Other place, Jesus says, I am the door. Then Jesus says, follow me. And Jesus' words are accurate. Why? Because those are God's words about Jesus. Christianity isn't just the way because Jesus promotes some kind of higher ethic than all the other world religions or because Jesus champions some cause or some value that rings true with us that we like that about Jesus. Jesus' way is true because in and through him we see and we find God drawing us to himself. That's why he came. We know that Jesus is the way We know that Jesus is the truth, so that point number three, the life, which is the eternal forever kind of life, that's the gift to those who follow Jesus, to those who come to the Father through the way that he has made available. And that life, it doesn't start just when we die That life actually starts right here and right now, that eternal kind of life, a new quality of life right here and right now. And our decision to take Jesus up on his invitation to that kind of life is the most important decision that any human being will ever make. And it's very simply this. Do I abandon my own human construction project to try to span the chasm that separates me from God or do I walk across the one that God built for me through Jesus Christ? Do I just keep my own construction project going? Do I try to take it upon myself to bridge that chasm? Or do I take Jesus up on the invitation 
to real, lasting, eternal life. And the message of John 14, 6 is crystal clear. The human construction project is not the way. It doesn't work. We could never build the bridge far enough. The message of John 14, 6 is that anybody, no matter our past, get this, no matter how far we've wandered, no matter how badly we think we've messed up, we can literally drop our trowel, put down our hard hat right now, today, and walk across the bridge that has been constructed, not from our side to God's side, but from God's side to us. We can come home. We can come home. We can live with God at the same level that Adam and Eve enjoyed before they lost life. We, because of the bridge which Jesus became for us, can be restored to the very same life which Adam and Eve so richly enjoyed. We no longer have to live life on our own. Instead, today, in this moment, you can come home right across the bridge deck that Jesus provided when he went to the cross on behalf of you and me. You can walk across the bridge, capital B bridge, that has been constructed. Anybody can. Anybody can. I'd ask you to take your things, if you would, and would you just set them aside? I invite you to use this time, close your eyes and bow your heads, if you would, and just speak to the Lord about what's on your heart and your mind. Just tell God, what it is that you're thinking about, if you would. I'm going to ask you, if you would, for the next couple of moments, just to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed would continue in that posture of prayer and listening and speaking to God as I stand up here on this stage today I have no idea where you stand in relationship to God I have no idea which side of the chasm of sin and separation from God that you're living life on but you do and maybe as you sit here in this room today you know that you have yet to take God up on his offer of salvation to you. You have yet to step across the bridge that Jesus provided through his death on the cross for my sin, for your sin. But in this moment, what I want you to know is that you can settle that once and for all. You can settle it. You can put down your trowel and you can put down your hard hat you can put a stop to your human construction effort that's trying to span that chasm. All the work that you've been doing trying to earn your way to God. You can put all that to a stop merely by acknowledging that Jesus loves you immeasurably, that he died on the cross to be your savior, to be the rescuer of your soul. You can, in this moment, put your faith and trust in him as your savior by the blood that he shed on the cross for you. And if that's you, if you're choosing to do that today, I'd invite you to express that to God right here and right now by praying along with me. Right where you're sitting, you can pray a prayer that goes something like this. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. 
God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have. But today, God, I realize that you are perfect and that you are holy and that my sin has separated me from you. And God, I'm putting down my construction tools. I'm stopping my human construction effort because I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin to build that bridge. And I ask you to please forgive me and please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend. I want you to change me. I need you to to clean my life up, please, God. Starting today, I make you the boss of my life. And you know, if you prayed just then to step across the bridge of Jesus Christ into a relationship with God, that's the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing carries more weight. It's such a big deal that around Journey Church, we actually ask people to tell us when they've made that decision. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. I want you to know that we're not going to embarrass you in any way. Nobody's looking around except me. I'm just going to ask you, if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, would you be so bold right where you're sitting just to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and say, yeah, I I did that, yeah. You in the back, way to go. Way to go. And you too right there, way to go. Stepping across the bridge of Jesus Christ into a relationship with God, both of you. Good job. You can put down your human construction effort. Is there anyone else? I don't want to miss anybody. God, we're just astounded that you so willingly paid such a high price for our salvation, for our redemption. You didn't have to do that. But we're so eternally grateful. And it's because of our gratitude, God, that we say, we just want to obey you. We just want to depend on you. We know that we don't have to earn our way to you because that price has been paid already. But we consider such a gift and we gratefully obey. Help us do that, please, God. Make us a community marked by grace, marked by obedience, marked by a ruthless trust in who you are and what you're doing, God. May the work you're doing in us flow through us to the lives of people around us so that they get it, so that they step off of their human construction project trying to span the chasm to you, God. And get it, that you did it, that it's done, paid for. And that the way is open to them. Use us in that way, please, God.